Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, we're picking up where we left off last week at verse 4, and we're going to read all the way down to verse 19. So 4 through 19. Some of you have heard of Marshall McLuhan. Maybe you've read Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which kind of piggybacks off of Marshall McLuhan's uh, statement that the media is the message. He was suggesting that you cannot separate the content of a message from the means by which it is delivered, the means by which it is received. He emphasized the fact that new technology, in this case movies, and then Neil Postman was referring to uh, television, but he emphasized the fact that new technology can change the values and norms of society over time. As you see those changes and you look back, it can oftentimes be traced to the, the way technology changed our approach. And so the means through which we approach God is critical to our understanding of the content of his revelation. I think there's some truth to this. The means by which the Old Testament saints approached God was different. Now, they belonged to the same covenant of grace, but we recognize that the administration of that covenant has differed throughout history. And the priestly administration radically changed between the Old and New Covenant. And that's really the subject of, that's the primary theme of Hebrews, definitely the subject of these chapters between 7 and 10, <clears throat> 7 and 10, and really began in chapter 5. So to revert to an older administration is to depart from the fulfillment in Christ. Now, we might also infer that developing a new administration apart from special revelation is to depart from the better hope that Christ has achieved. Now, here it seems that the people were tempted to revert back to temple worship, but oftentimes in our day and age, there's this new development, new approach to God, right? oftentimes associated with some work of the Spirit and, and something that's only given to a very small portion of the body of Christ. They've got that secret, and we all have to catch it as well. We have to learn it and practice the same thing. So I think the way we approach God is really the, the subject of this section. The means by which we commune with God must be governed by the word of God. But unfortunately, humans are fickle beings, right? We, we want to come up, we're enamored by creative means of approaching God. But when we really reflect, when we really acknowledge what Christ has done, what he has accomplished, we won't be so easily led astray from the biblical prescription for worship. And so fundamentally, this passage teaches us to draw near to God through a better hope empowered by the indestructible life of our Savior. And that's where this passage will conclude. But before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help. And understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for your word. And we recognize that every time we open it, you have something to show us. You have something to reveal to us that we need for our salvation, for our sanctification, our growth in grace. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear the truth. Soften our hearts to respond in obedience to it. Help us to remove the distractions from our minds right now that we would truly engage with your word by your spirit, opening ourselves up to your word as your word is opened to us. Lord, we recognize that all of that is a means of grace that you have given us to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so use your word now to do that work that we so desperately need. Convict us, comfort us by your gospel. Send us out confident in your work. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So read with me Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils, and whose descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, speaking of Melchizedek, but this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises." It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to the other tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we're picking up in the last portion of our, um, the section we read last week, which was verses 1 through 10. Um, and I, you know, going back even further, we, we titled this sermon series on Hebrews that uh, Jesus is greater than, using the, the math symbol for greater than. Jesus is greater than. 
really it's just synonymous with saying Jesus is better. And that word better occurs in Hebrews more than any other place in the New Testament combined, right? All of the other uses of the word better in the New Testament combined, it appears in Hebrew more often, in Hebrews more often. So what's being contrasted here is not a bad thing to a good thing. What the author is contrasting is a good thing with something that is better. The point is that Jesus brings a better hope, as he concludes there in verse 19, one that establishes a better covenant relationship with God, one that all of the other aspects of worship pointed to. It was always something that they held on to by faith, that future fulfillment that Christ brings. So last week we began by reviewing all of the passages in Hebrews that mention high priests that point to Jesus as our high priest that that led us to this argument for Melchizedek, the character of Melchizedek. And so this week we'll look at Melchizedek in comparison, first of all, to Abraham and then to Christ. And so this first section in your outline is the superiority of Melchizedek, verses 4 and 10, the superiority of Melchizedek, or verses 4 through 10. It's, it's highlighting the fact that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, someone who this audience would have highly esteemed. And the author focuses on the, the tithe that Abraham offered, as well as the blessing that Melchizedek gave to Abraham. And so those two things were already mentioned in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7. So now he's just elaborating on those two aspects, proving his point, right, that Melchizedek is superior. And so the first point he makes is that Melchizedek received a tithe from Abraham. He actually brackets this section, verses 4 through the first part of 6, and then he comes back to that same idea in verses 8 through 10 with verse 6b, or the second half of verse 6 and 7, being a reference to the blessing that Melchizedek gave to Abraham. So what does it mean that Melchizedek receives a tithe from Abraham? Throughout Israel's history, the Levites were commanded to receive tithes from the people. It was the Levites who collected the offerings and who offered the sacrifices on behalf of the people. They They were all descendants of Abraham. But the Levites were given a tithe instead of an allotment of land for their inheritance. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 and 2, and other places. But this tithe also served as payment for their priestly service. So this entire tribe was devoted to, the, to, to facilitating and administering the worship that took place in the temple. Right? Certain men were qualified for that work. The rest of the tribe facilitated that. They are the ones that, you know, that... that made sure the the tabernacle and the temple was always ready for worship. They were responsible for packing up and traveling whenever they moved. And so the Lord pays for their livelihood through the tithes and offerings of the rest of the tribes. Whereas the Levites are mortal men, Melchizedek is prophesied by the psalmist in Psalm 110 verse 4 as one who lives. Now, no Levitical priest could ever be superior to Abraham, but Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he shows his superiority by blessing Abraham, 
right? If Melchizedek blessed Abraham, then his superiority extends as well to Abraham's descendants. He's not just superior to Abraham, but he's superior to everyone who follows in the faith of Abraham. Hervia says, if Melchizedek, who was a sign and shadow, is preferred to Abraham and to all the Levitical priests, how much more Christ, who is the truth and the substance, if a type of Christ is greater than he who has the promises, how much more so is Christ himself? So the point he's making here is that tithes are offered by the inferior to the superior. Abraham offers a tithe to Melchizedek. It, makes, it implies that Melchizedek is superior to him. And blessings are given by the superior to the inferior. Again, recognizing the authority and the superiority of Melchizedek is shown in that Melchizedek blesses Abraham after he comes back from that victorious military campaign. All throughout my, my high school years, I had, a, I had several mentors, but one mentor in particular named Dave Peterson um, was a great encouragement to me. And he was on staff at the church I attended, and he also served as the director for Young Life uh, in Fresno. And at, at one point, he went on this short-term mission trip to Japan. And one of the men that he met on that trip wanted to give him a gift as he was leaving. It was sort of custom, right, to, to send your guests off with a gift, a thanks, a kind of a thank offering, if you will. But he didn't have anything with him, and so he's a little embarrassed. And so as he's, they're saying their goodbyes, he bends down and he takes the, the leather shoelace off of his shoe and he wraps it around Dave's wrist and, and gives that to him. Again, a little ashamed that that's all he had, but it became one of the most important gifts that Dave had received. Right? He reflected upon that, and he was moved by that, and he was reminded of that friendship for many years, um, praying for that young man. And it was such an important gesture for him that he wanted to, to do the same thing for those of us that he was mentoring. So he grabbed a, a few leather shoelaces and did the same thing for us. And I remember throughout high school wearing that thing until it practically dissolved and then replacing it with another one and wearing that until that dissolved as well and finally um, not replacing it. But, but that, that symbol of friendship right, was, was important. It was really a reminder to me of the blessings that I had received from his mentoring of me. It's oftentimes those simple gestures of blessing and friendship that speak the loudest over the years. Right? The superior reward is found in the simplest of gestures. And so when we come into God's presence, we bring a simple offering. We bring it in faith. It isn't the amount of the offering that we bring, or even the quality of our faith, but the recognition that we are offering it as a symbol of our loyal friendship to the most superior mediator. Right? So when we worship God through Jesus Christ, we receive the greatest blessing of truly drawing near to the living God. So oftentimes we come in flippantly, right? We don't reflect on the 
on what's actually taking place here. It's why we, we have the call to worship to, to pause and to move from, from the transition from Sunday school and fellowship to, to say, what are we doing? What are we about to engage in as a corporate body here? How are we going to come before God with a proper posture? So when we worship God through Jesus Christ, we receive the greatest blessing of truly drawing near to the living God. God has, has now brought us near as friends who were once enemies through the sacrificial offering of his son. Now, Jesus offered himself upon the cross the most expensive offering in history so that we might be reconciled to God through him. And then what does he give us as a symbol of that, as an emblem of, of that sacrifice? Very simple, bread and wine. Elements that we would have on our dinner table regularly. Things that, have, that are easy to access. It's all meant to point to this very simple gesture is meant to point to the most superior offering and gift that we could have ever imagined. Whenever we're distracted by another shiny object of some other means of approaching God, let us remember the greatest sacrifice through one of the simplest means of grace that he instituted for us to remember him by. In the next section, in verses 11 through 14, we, we learn about the order of Melchizedek, the superiority of Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek. And the focus in this section is really on the inadequacy of the priesthood after the order of Aaron. The Levitical priesthood promoted the law, but could not provide the ability to obey it. That's the key distinction here. The Levitical priesthood promoted the law. That it came, the law came through that system under the Old Covenant. But it could not provide those who participated in that worship the ability to obey the law. This is why another priesthood was necessary. Now, what does it mean that a change in the law was necessary? We see that in verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The laws regarding the priesthood and the Levitical sacrificial system necessarily came to an end when Christ fulfilled their purpose. This is the ceremonial law uniquely satisfied so that there is no more need for its operation. With the arrival of the substance, we do not need to revert to the shadows, but we move on from those. This is the difference that, that now, this is different from how Christ fulfills the moral law. We're speaking of the ceremonial law as it's been abrogated. The moral law, Christ also fulfills but it's not abrogated in the same way. Right? It still applies to us. The purpose of the moral law is to do the will of our Father in heaven. And so by trusting in Christ, we are being conformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. So the moral law is to be perpetually observed by everyone while the ceremonial laws are abrogated. That's the language of the Westminster Confession, chapter 19, section 3. So when when Christ satisfied the righteous requirements of the ceremonial law, they were abrogated. As he satisfies the righteous requirements of the moral law, he invites us to participate with him 
right? It's through our union with him that we can then honor God by faith with the help of the Spirit. And then it says these things here in verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Who's it speaking of? It's, it's speaking of, it's saying all of these things, these ceremonial laws, they all spoke of Jesus, who was not from the tribe of Levi. But we've been referring to him as a priest. Jesus didn't descend from Levi, but from the tribe of Judah, which never produced priests. And Moses never speaks of that. So how can we understand this? Well, the point he's making is that the old system, the old Levitical system, could not provide the perfection that was necessary. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, then why would there be a further need for another priesthood? For another priest who would rise from the order of Melchizedek. Matt mentioned this in Sunday school, this idea of perfection, Matthew 5:48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, no one could attain perfection through the Levitical priesthood, even the priests themselves. Their first act was to offer a sacrifice on on behalf of their own sin, to atone for their own sin, before they could offer it for, on behalf of the people. So no one could attain perfection through the Levitical priesthood, but the question then is, can we attain it through the Melchizedek priesthood, through the order of Melchizedek? Is it now possible? How does the order of Melchizedek supply what was lacking in the order of Aaron? The way you answer that question is crucial. It's foundational to your approach to God. John Calvin says, There being a change in the priesthood, there must of necessity be a change of the law. All the sacerdotal functions, the priestly functions, were transferred to Christ and in him fulfilled and ended. To him alone, therefore, all the rights and honors of the priesthood have been transferred. So under the Levitical system, Christ never offered a single sacrifice. He didn't go into the synagogues and start acting like a priest. It was the religious leaders, in fact, the Jewish scribes and priests who handed Jesus over to be crucified by Roman authorities. So the very substance of which their offerings were a symbol was ministering among them. But they rejected him and offered him up as a sacrifice. The irony is that it was through that very sacrifice that perfection was finally attained for all who place their faith in the lamb who was slain. That's that's what Hebrews ultimately will teach us in Hebrews 10, verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ has completed the work necessary for us to be justified. And to receive the gift of ongoing sanctification. So why would the author seek to downplay the Levitical priesthood? 
And why wouldn't he simply talk about the greatness of the order of Melchizedek? As he's making his argument. It seems apparent to me that the author would only feel the need to do this if he thought there were people in his audience who were reverting back to an expired practice. Right? His audience needed to see how they were attaching living significance to a dead system. They perceived they might find religious value by maintaining a worthless tradition. It would have been similar to attaching circumcision, right? To, uh, religious significance to the act of circumcision after Christ has fulfilled that in the new covenant. And that's not hyperbole to call it worthless tradition. In fact, in verse 18, he calls it useless, weak and useless. So they were on the verge of denigrating the priesthood of Christ and his sacrifice by appealing to the temple and viewing it with ongoing validity. They were tempted to replace the superior means of approaching God with the older, inferior means. So how do we avoid similar errors today? We want to appreciate all that we can about the shadows and symbols of biblical imagery and then recognize how our Lord fulfills them by satisfying their ultimate purpose. And then we approach God both corporately on Sundays or whenever we gather throughout the week, corporately as well as individually through the ordinary means appropriate to the administration of the gospel. Listen to the way the confession says it in chapter 7, section 6. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, Yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles. So we actually get simpler, a simpler administration for a superior gift. The simplicity of the ordinary means of grace served to magnify the superiority of the new covenant. It's similar to what God says uh, when he gives us jars of clay, this treasure of the gospel to display and to proclaim. He puts it in jars of clay that, that our weakness might make the power of God all the more evident. And so we don't need to get creative with our approach to God. We simply continue to draw near through a better hope and we'll conclude with this last section, verses 15 through 19, the likeness of Melchizedek. The superiority, the superiority of Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek, and then the likeness of Melchizedek. In verse 15, the Messiah would not arise from the order of Aaron. He comes from Judah, which never produced any priest. But Melchizedek was a legitimate priest of the Most High God who administered the covenant of grace before Aaron. Whereas Melchizedek had no record of his birth and death, Jesus existed before his birth, and he conquered death. 
that Jesus came in the likeness of Melchizedek implies that physical descent had nothing to do with his priestly order. What distinguished Christ from every other Old Testament priest was his resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of the Father, which enables him to remain a priest forever. Because he ever lives to intercede for us. Every previous high priest died so that his priestly office had to be filled by another. On the other hand, as our great high priest, Jesus rose again from the dead and never needs to be replaced. He ushers us into the Holy of Holies, as we read in chapter 620, so that all believers might share in his priesthood. Verse 18, then, is a general reference to the commandments of the law that were incapable of perfecting anyone or anything. The law that governed the Levitical system was incapable of making anyone perfect. The priesthood could never permanently achieve the righteousness that it symbolized. It only pointed forward, and their participation in that worship was an act of faith in what Christ, the Messiah, would accomplish. So in Christ, we're introduced to a better hope. He becomes our eternal mediator, granting us permanent access to the throne of grace. Barbara Paul Martin says this, the practical lesson, of course, is that it is foolish to return to the old hope when the better hope has come. The goal of the church under the new covenant is to retain the hope that Christ introduced. He has introduced a better hope. And so the goal is to to retain that to live in that hope. Humans will continue to introduce new ideas as long as we remain in this present age. New philosophers can spark debate and build anticipation for some great new thing that's going to be revealed to humanity. Herman Bobbing says this, philosophy, whenever, whenever after a period of decay, it enters upon a period of revival again, always begins with an extraordinary and exaggerated expectation. Everyone gets behind it and gets excited about it. At such a time, it lives in the hope that by means of continued serious investigation, it will solve the riddle of the world. But always, after this young overexcitement, the old disillusionment enters in. So far from decreasing, the problems actually increase as the study proceeds. So the greatest philosophies of this world can ultimately offer Nothing more than a fading hope. It can never satisfy the demands of our heart. And so the original audience here was tempted by an inferior hope. Not only a fading hope, but one that had, had been fulfilled. They were on the verge of departing from the prescription of redemptive history. Similarly, we are often led astray by outdated tradition or newly developing philosophies philosophies. Listen to the the repeated exhortation of Hebrews then as we close. Draw near to God through a better hope that is held out to you by the resurrected Savior who conquered sin and death and ever lives to make intercession for you. May that be what motivates us and drives us to gather together and to continue to worship him the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
for this passage. We thank you for this reminder that we have that in Christ we have a better hope. In Christ we have the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament pointed to. And so our goal is to look back, to look back upon the cross and what he accomplished for us. The access that he has given us, even now that we can come to you as children to a father because we've been adopted as brothers and sisters of Christ, our Lord and Savior. His righteousness imputed to us, our sin imputed to him upon the cross so that we have this wonderful substitutionary atonement, this exchange that we could never accomplish apart from Christ. And it's because of that we come and we lift our hearts to you. We seek to, to know you more earnestly, to draw near to you through that better hope recognizing that it is empowered by an indestructible life, our resurrected Lord, who is seated at your right hand, even now interceding on our behalf. And you give us your spirit or to, to keep us as that down payment, a guarantee that that inheritance awaits us as well, that it's kept in heaven for us preserved for us until we enter our eternal rest. Lord, may that better hope never fade. May it continue to increase, and we know that that's only going to take place if your spirit is helping us to, to continue to be moved by your word, by your revelation, that we would be devoted to you who began that good work in us, recognizing that you have promised to bring it to completion. Lord, help us to not be enamored by the things of this world, by alternative forms of approaching you. Help us to once again just deepen our affection for our Lord and Savior. And through, through him, find in you a superior satisfaction. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn, hymn of response, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. You'll find it in your insert. <clears throat> 